Perpetrator, the true crime podcast that tells the stories of the victims and the NYPD cops who served them. The perpetrators in these stories will not be named. No notoriety of any kind will be afforded to these offenders. Episode 1, Menace to Society. This episode tells the story of a violent perpetrator, two brave women, and a nearly one-year investigation that it took to bring the offender to justice. It's a rainy Wednesday night in the Lower East Side, and unlike Times Square or maybe Greenwich Village, which stay happening during the rain, Alphabet City is quiet and almost depressing looking. No one is walking the streets except for a random drug addict, or maybe someone trying to get home. Sometimes a police car, an ambulance, or a car service drives through, but that's about it. Now, there have been some bars and restaurants opening up down here in the past few years. Occasionally, you hear the music of some new hipster band leak out of the bars when the door to the spot would open. At one of these new bars, around 3 a.m., two rocker friends get ready to leave. One is small and petite, the other still looks a little wild, with dyed pink hair and a leather jacket. The two friends look outside the bar and realize it's pouring rainy. After seeing this, the bouncer hands them a large umbrella with a big wooden handle that someone had left behind. They thank him and start walking west on East 7th Street from Avenue C, finishing the conversations they had tried to start in the bar, but weren't unable to because of the loud music. Somewhere around 7th Street and 1st Avenue, a small four-door car is driving slowly behind the friends. Eventually, it speeds up and pulls over around five car lengths to the curb in front of them. They stop and watch as a man of athletic build steps out of the car. The two ladies are nervous for a second. The guy looks like a street thug. But they relax when he pulls out a cell phone, looks up at a window of a six-story tenement, and starts talking into the phone. As the friends walk by him, he continues to speak on his phone. As soon as they pass, they feel a little relieved inside, but don't say anything to each other. The street is totally quiet, except for the muttering coming from him as he is speaking into his cell phone. Without warning, the smaller friend feels a strong arm come around her neck and immediately start choking her, and she feels herself being dragged into the street. She turns her head and sees the back door of the vehicle open, and a large man in the back seat reaching out with his long arms yelling, get her in dog, get her in. Screaming as loud as she can and scratching, kicking and fighting the man who has her in a chokehold, it appears that it is doing nothing to break his grip. Then suddenly his grip loosens. She sees her friend screaming and hitting the male on the head with the wood handle of the umbrella that the bouncer had given them earlier. Now the three of them are struggling with the smaller woman's head and shoulders almost completely inside the back seat of the car. The man in the back seat is grabbing at her arms. There is also another man in the driver's seat screaming and yelling. The women then hear a car horn beeping. It's a yellow taxi and a woman in the back seat puts down the window and screams, 
Let her go, I'm calling 911. Let her go. Another woman screams from the window of an apartment building. The man who had tried to throw her in the back of the car curses and then slams her hard to the ground. He jumps in the front seat of the car, but as the car is pulling away from the curb, the victim, bruised and bloodied, laying on the street, turns and looks at the license plate of the vehicle, repeats it to herself over and over again. She then pulls out her cell phone, dials 911, and when the operator asks, where is the emergency, she repeats the license plate number over and over again, placing the plate number on the 911 tape. The police arrive with the paramedics, but unfortunately, the perpetrators have escaped. Fast forward a few hours to 8 a.m. Detectives Sinali, Wigdor, and I arrive at the 9th Precinct Detective Squad to start our day. It appears to be a typical morning in the squad room. Mikey Wigdor starts assigning cases for the day. Nikki Sinelli has assigned a case that I guess to him looks too serious to start working on, with only a few weeks left to retire. He turns to me and asks, Hey, Murray. Just to clarify, Murray is a nickname that many of the cops who worked in the 9th Precinct in the 1980s and 1990s used for each other. I'm not sure how it started, but I'm guessing it was really put into use by a couple of good friends of mine, partners Tony Longo and Joe Scalonia. While they may not admit this, my theory is they could never remember all the guys in the precinct's names. We had over 300 cops at the time. So they started using that as a way to communicate to different cops in the precinct. And it just kind of stuck as a greeting until this day. At the Fighting Ninth reunion every year, there's a lot of Murrays being thrown around. Again, Nikki Sinelli says, Murray, do you want this case or not? It was an attempted kidnapping. Of course I say yes. As I go through the complaint report, I start to get a feeling that this was not just some mugging. It appears to be a legit kidnapping attempt. The first thing I do is call the victim and set up an interview with her. As I'm meeting with the victim and the witness several hours later, they both still seem generally shook up. This was not some type of domestic incident or drunken bar situation. I believe they had no idea who these guys were. This was a straight-out stranger abduction case. Mike Wigdor, myself, and Sergeant Rob Gibbons are driving to Brooklyn after running the license plate the victim had provided to us. We are going to check out the registered owner of the vehicle and see what they have to say. On the way to the Canarsie neighborhood of Brooklyn, we get a call from one of our captains telling us, that if we're going to incur overtime to come back to the office now and go back out tomorrow in the morning so we would be on straight time. After Sergeant Gibbons hangs up the phone, we express our frustrations with a this is bullshit and other various expletives. Sergeant Gibbons says, fuck that, we're going anyway. We can figure out the overtime problem later. Mike and I say, we don't give a shit about the overtime. We just want to get these guys captain just didn't understand that about us. We arrive at the house in Canarsie and we speak to a male stocky build with braids in his hair. He blurts out, I didn't even know they were going to do that shit. We know we have the right guy and we all drive back to the detective squad for further questioning. On the way back to the office, he kept saying, I can't believe they did that shit. 
I just wanted to go out and have some fun. God damn. After several hours of interviews with the male with the braids and some other people, I put some information together and checked the NYPD databases. I'm able to determine who the perpetrator in the back seat was. Before we go look for that guy, the prisoner with the braids describes a frightening story to myself and Mike about what happened that night. It appears that the driver is an acquaintance of the other two guys. He's not a good friend. They had all gone out to a few bars in an attempt to meet some women. After drinking and doing cocaine, the three of them have struck out with the ladies. They then asked the guy with the braids to drive them back to Brooklyn to meet some women they all know in common. On the way down the FDR drive, the male in the front seat asks the driver to pull off the highway near 23rd Street. He then tells the driver to stop in front of a building, most likely on Avenue C in the Stuyvesant Town section. A young woman is walking into the building at the time. The passenger in the front seat jumps out and attempts to run up behind her, but the woman makes it inside the building, closing the locked door behind her. He then gets back into the car and says, keep driving. At this point, the driver says, what were you doing? He responds, I was just going to use the bathroom. I was going to take a pee. The driver feels nervous, but being these guys are gang members, he does not want to cause any arguments. They then drive for a few blocks and a short while later, they notice two women walking on 7th Street. The passenger tells the driver, pull over. The driver keeps asking, why? What are you going to do? The two passengers, they are speaking in some type of gang slang that the driver does not understand. The driver has no criminal record and is a utility worker and has been working for several years. After pulling over, hoping all he was going to do was try to rap or flirt with them, down deep he thinks he might grab her pocketbook. He observes the passenger looking up at a window. As soon as the women walk past him, he sees the passenger start choking the smaller female and dragging her to his car. He hears the back door open, and he hears the rear passenger yelling, get her in, dog, get her in. The driver claims that he is screaming and yelling to stop, but the men continue to fight with the women and try to pull the smaller woman into the back seat. Eventually, after what seems like five minutes, they give up, and the front passenger jumps back into the front seat. He tells the driver to drive, and the driver speeds off. While driving down 2nd Avenue, the driver keeps yelling at the two passengers and asks them, what the fuck is wrong with you? What were you doing? They tell him to shut up and keep driving. At this point, the passenger in the front seat turns to the passenger in the rear seat and says, why did you do that? You know when there is more than one of them, you have to get out and help. That sends a shiver through the driver's body as he realizes that these two have done this before. While driving over the Brooklyn Bridge, there are several police cars with their emergency lights on, and the rear passenger then says to the front seat passenger, yo, the cops are on the bridge, what would we have done with her? The front passenger says, no problem, I would have held the bitch's head down. A short time later, while driving through Brooklyn, the front passenger notices another young woman waiting at a bus stop. He tells the driver, yo, there's another one, pull over here. The driver tells him, are you fucking crazy? I'm not pulling over, and he keeps driving. Eventually, he drops the two men off at their girlfriend's house back in Canarsie, Brooklyn.
After some more questioning of witnesses and associates, we feel we have identified the male in the back seat who was yelling, get her in dog, get her in. Mike Wigdor and I travel up to East Harlem to a barber shop where the suspect supposedly works. The shop is filled with young males, presumably friends or associates of the guy we are looking for, but we don't have to question anyone. There he is, standing right there, about six foot five, well over 250 pounds. With our adrenaline pumping, Mike and I brace for a fight and tell him he has to come with us down to the station house. He reluctantly agrees without an incident, and we head down to the ninth squad. We are back in the ninth squad room, and we have the individual in the interview room. He's placing all of the blame regarding the incident on the third guy from the passenger front seat who had choked our victim. He tells us that it was all the front passenger's idea and that he is crazy. He admits to being in the back seat, which is good for us, as it puts him at the scene. And based upon statements of our witness and the victims, I then say to him, you are under arrest for attempted kidnapping. After finishing some final paperwork, we prepare to transport him to the Manhattan Central Booking Facility, unofficially known as the Tombs, due to the cavernous-like holding cells located under the Manhattan Criminal Court buildings. But before we leave the precinct, he tells us the name of the third guy, the front passenger, the one who had gotten out of the car to grab the victim. We know this guy is bad news, simply due to the nature of trying to abduct this woman. But the more we learn about him, it's clear this was not an isolated event, that this woman was certainly not his only victim, and this guy belonged behind bars. Mike and I are determined to catch this guy, but little do we know how hard it will be to track him down. This has been Perpetrator, True Crime NYPD Stories, as recounted by former detective and now private investigator and owner of Cornelius Investigations in New York City, Scott Prendergast. Thank you for listening.